you're listening to McBee Care Threads, a podcast where leaders across the healthcare industry can learn from each other. We'll discuss stories and explore strategies to help providers deliver value-based care and hear your peers share their best practices for success. Let's get into the show. Hello and welcome everyone to the McBee Care Threads podcast. My name is Maria Warren and I'm a vice president here at McBee. Our guest today is Ryan Iwamoto, the president and co-founder of 24-Hour Home Care. And on today's episode, we're gonna be talking about the importance of a people-first culture and the future of non-medical home care. So let's get started. Ryan, it's a pleasure to have you join me today on the podcast. So why don't you start off by introducing yourself and sharing a little bit about the history of 24-Hour Home Care. Hi, Maria. Thanks for having me on. Excited to, uh, to talk shop and share my story. Um, I guess I'll start off. Uh, my name is Ryan Iwamoto, and I am the president and co-founder of 24-Hour Home Care. And I think uh, where I'll start my story is uh, maybe in college, if you don't mind. So uh, college, when I was growing up, and this sort of leads to 24, so there's a reason for it. But in college growing up, um, I was one of the students that like, I had no idea exactly what I wanted to do in life. Um, I studied sociology. Um, that's one of the degrees where everyone asks you, what are you going to do with that degree after college? A lot of my friends were going into business school or law school. Uh, real estate was pretty big at the time too, which is around 2005. Uh, but I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And in fact, I was thinking about teaching. There's an opportunity to teach English in Japan. And I'm Japanese by heritage, but never went to Japan uh, as of that moment in college. And uh, I thought this is a great opportunity to do it. But I applied and I did the interview and it was sort of one of my first like punches in the gut of not being, uh, not getting the job. And I remember telling all my friends and family like, hey, I'm going to go teach in Japan. This is like my next step after college. And not getting that job was definitely uh, a little bit of a hit of humble pie. Uh, but I ended up coming back home and uh, looking for work. And my mom, who was very supportive of me, said, hey, you should go find work and actually suggested healthcare because healthcare was a really strong industry. So the first job that I uh, interviewed at was for a company called Maxim Healthcare Services. And Maxim's still out there today and they specialize in home health. And when I started with them, they just launched their non-medical home care division. Uh, so that is where I got uh, sort of the background and learned about the opportunity of care in the home. 10,000 people turn 65. People are living longer. Most people want to live in the home. And I saw that as an opportunity. Along the same lines, uh, in parallel, in 20 or 2006 or seven, my grandmother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So personally, we had the challenge of finding a quality caregiver to care for my grandmother. I was in the industry and it was very challenging finding the right fit. So um, had the personal experience as well, but I've also saw the magic of home care. Uh, my grandmother, since being diagnosed and having a caregiver lived in her home from uh, that diagnosis all the way to 2019 when she passed away. And she had a caregiver that whole time. Uh, and she passed away at the beautiful age of 101 years old. Uh, so we saw the magic of, of home care and what it can provide. I'm a, I truly believe that if we didn't have that support, she would not have that same 
type of life and live to be 101 years old. So I think having those two lenses really was some of the inspiration of starting 24 Hour Home Care. And my partner, David Allerby, had a very similar experience as well with his grandmother and seeing that from a personal lens. So uh, fast forward, we, we started the organization in 2008 in a small 900 square foot office in Torrance, California, which is in Los Angeles County. And now to this day in 2023, we have expanded and are now in uh, four states and we serve about 13,000 individuals, uh, both seniors and adults and children with developmental disabilities. And we hire and work about 13,000 caregivers as well. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, Ryan. I, I love hearing the story of what, what got you to where you are today and the passion, the firsthand experiences, the I, identifying that th there's a need and bringing that all together and informing and, and bringing to market 24 hour home care and the the client lives that you inspire every single day by helping them remain independent to get the care that they need and the support that they need um, from caregivers in their home. Yeah. And just to add to that too, I think you bring up a really good point of like, I think my time at Maxim, we saw the opportunity and or the need, right? People need help in the home. And I think people do well with caregiving in the home. I saw from a personal lens too, but also my grandmother going through it, I think that really developed my why and my purpose for doing what I need to do. And if you have something that can solve a need, but also align that with purpose, you have a really powerful uh, mission to go off of. And I think that's the benefit that I was able to bring to 24 Home Care, along with my partner as well. Absolutely. I, I love that. That's such a great to hear about your your background, your personal experience that brought you to 24 hour home care and and forming it. And you just hit on something about, you know, mission, vision, um, values. And one thing that you shared with me that I think our listeners would really love to hear about is you told me that you want your organization to become the Trader Joe's of home care. And, you know, I love Trader Joe's. I, I don't think I ever met a person that doesn't like Trader Joe's, you know, unless they go there and the, pro the product or produce or something that they want to buy isn't in stock, which it's so popular that happens. So talk to me a little bit about uh, the vision of uh, behind you becoming the Trader Joe's of home care and what that's all standing on. Yeah, when my partner uh, David and I were thinking about the home care industry, and again, we were working in it, he also worked for Maxim too. You know, we're thinking about it, and the industry, home care was really fragmented, and it still is today. On one side of the spectrum, you have your mom and pops or your, your franchises. And then on the other side, you have these large home health companies that also do the non medical home care. But it's not their like primary service line. It's usually like their secondary tertiary one. And we found that there's really nothing in between, right? So we wanted to find maybe some inspiration around like, are there companies that maybe had the personalization of a smaller business, but also had like the infrastructure, the personal, the professionalism and the scalability of, you know, a large organization. And there really wasn't anything there in healthcare. Um, so we had to look outside of our industry and lo and behold, right around the corner, there's a Trader Joe's. And I think Trader Joe's really found the formula 
to be able to scale, right? It started in Southern California, but then it's pretty much everywhere now across the US, but they found a way to scale it and really ha they haven't lost that community feel. Cause every time I talk to people, like they talk about it as like, that's my Trader Joe's, right? That's my neighborhood Trader Joe's. Even their tagline is your neighborhood grocery store. And every Trader Joe's sort of personalizes their environment to be very local. So I love that about it. And we all know healthcare is very local. So we thought that was a great playbook for us to use and, and inspire us to create the framework for 24 hour home care. And the other thing about Trader Joe's too, I admire is that, you know, they have quality product. They are uh, competitively priced, if not even sometimes lower. But I think what really sets them apart, it's their people. Their people are their secret sauce. Um, you interact with them and they just seem, well, first of all, they're not even called employees. They're called crew members. And we all know they wear that like uh, cool Hawaiian shirts, but like your inter interaction with them, they're just a little bit friendlier, a little bit more engaged, a little bit more happier in their jobs, right? If you ask a Trader Joe's employee, like, hey, where's the almond butter? You're not going to have someone just point to aisle seven. You're going to probably have someone walk you over there and also have a conversation with you about it and probably also talk to you about like cashew butter and some other nut, nut butters. And it's going to be a really good experience for you, but you also get a sense like this person really enjoys what they do. And I think that has really been very, very inspirational for us is like, how can we create that secret sauce by putting that same level of engagement in our people and be the Trader Joe's of home care? And um, we're progress over perfection, but, um, and, and we still have a long ways to go, but we feel like by making sure our caregivers and employees are a little bit more engaged, a little bit more friendlier, a little bit more maybe trained better and maybe well, well paid, we can create that same, same experience that Trader Joe's did for the grocery store industry. I love that. Uh, what a great I idea and focus and mantra and playbook to live by. Uh, as I said, every time I go in there, it's a, it's a warm experience, uh, just like any service that you get uh, or wherever you shop or wherever you go. You want to feel welcomed, appreciated, cared for, guided and having the highest quality product service, whatever it may be um, at, a, at a competitive price point. Yeah. And I think of like I'm I, I admire a lot of companies that when they have a very commoditized product, right? Like pretty much you can get it wherever you want to get it, but where they excel is how they deliver through their people. Like that really inspires and engages me. So like companies that come to mind, like in the fast food industry, right? If you want to get a burger, you have a lot of options, but like, again, I know this is not a national brand, but In-N-Out, I think most people know In-N-Out. In-N-Out has done a really good job of putting people first, and really engaging in their employees. Everyone, if you talk to people in in and out we've hired a lot of people from in and out and they really speak fondly about their experience there. And at the end of the day, they're flipping burgers, but they are just a little bit more engaged, a little bit happier in the role, take pride in the role that they do too, but they're flipping burgers. So like, if you can really put emphasis, put people first, you really can make people your secret sauce. And for healthcare, people are a product. And what better way to do that than to really align on this people first 
philosophy and culture. So that is something we lean heavily on. That's so true. Uh, you know, the people are what make the organization. And when you have them really, it, whether it's the, the secret sauce or drinking the Kool-Aid and aligned with the organization's mission, vision, values, it truly leads uh, to, it pays dividends and extremely beneficial to the organization as, as they look at the root cause of what are we here to do and what, what's the service that we provide that you, you don't even need a market. Uh, because the service that you provide markets for yourself. One of the things that uh, I would say that really has hit the, um, you know, home and community-based services across the board, um, you know, prior to COVID, even, you know, just because of COVID was, you know, staffing challenges. And, you know, we still feel the effects of them today. And I, I think some of the things that you've just talked about regarding your, um, alignment into wanting to be the Trader Joe's and that high level of customer service has been a, a great way that you've been able to successfully recruit and retain high qualified caregivers and office staff. Can you share a little bit about it outside of um, what we just talked about on how you've been able to recruit and retain? Yeah, and, and this is a ongoing challenge for us. And, and I'm not going to preach here like I have all the solutions here, but I think I've found three things that can really help, at least uh, in some of these efforts of, of retaining and attracting um, the employees. So I think the first thing is culture. And I think understanding that culture, it's not one thing that you do. Right? It's not like massages or snacks in the, in the kitchen. And there's really no magic bullet or action plan for it. The way I perceive culture, it, it is an outcome. And it's an outcome that emerges from the practices and activities around how you treat your, your people. So if you want to cultivate a strong and positive company culture, you need to focus on the factors that really influence it. So you know, if you want to change your culture and have a you know, more positive or elevate your culture, change the way you hire, right? change the way you pay. What's your philosophy and strategy on pay? Change the way you orientate your employees, how you socialize them, how you train them. That is really going to create the outcome, which is going to be the culture. So I think that's the first thing is just really understanding that. Um, and how do you affect your culture if you feel like it's not strong? I would say the second thing, and, and this is really like putting into the most simplest form of retention. I feel like there's two pillars for, especially on the caregiver side. If you don't have these two pillars, all the other stuff really don't matter. Those two pillars are pay and consistency of work. So be, before you think about anything else on retention, make sure that you feel very strongly that your strategy is good for both competitive pay and consistency of work. So I'll start with pay. So you don't have to be the highest paid in the industry. Sometimes you just can't do that. It's very hard to do that and compete, but you have to be competitive. And I would say lean on being better paid than your industry. If you're going to be below it, it's, it's just going to be very hard for you to compete. So find a way to do that. Now, I've, I talked to owners about this and home care leaders and just like, I just can't do it. I can't pay more. You can. There's just a trade-off. What are you going to trade off? And one of the things that we did on our private, private pay side of the business for our caregivers is uh, we made a strategic decision that we wanted to pay above market in every single territory. 
it did come with a trade-off. So some of the trade-offs that we had were, well, maybe if we can pay more in our territories, we didn't need to expend as much on the ad costs to be able to acquire the caregivers. So that was a trade-off. And we saw some really good benefits in terms of attracting the caregivers and our recruiters maybe didn't have to work as hard to convince the caregivers to come with us or sell them to come over to us. So yes, you can pay more. There's just a trade-off. So figure out what that trade-off is. On the consistency of work, I think we see this probably more on the private pay side. But if you can't provide consistency on a weekly basis of work being available, it's going to be very hard to keep them, keep your caregivers, right? So like if the caregiver doesn't know that they're going to be working the next week, like I think we can all put ourselves in that shoe. Like why would you continue to work for that company, right? Like if, if our jobs, we didn't know we were going to be able to work tomorrow, like that, that would be very tough. So how do you do that? How do you provide consistency of work? Well, hopefully you have enough work coming in that you can be able to provide this consistency, even though the client may unfortunately pass away or, or cancel services, you still have other clients that you can fill in. Um, I know on the, the funded side of maybe Medicaid, maybe you do have that consistency because the hours are paid for and you have authorizations for the work. But if you can't really fulfill the consistency of work, again, all the other stuff, it's going to be, it doesn't really matter because you're going to lose the caregiver anyways. And I say that because I've talked to people and looked as sort of like, what are some, some good things to keep retention? And I've, you've probably heard at different conferences of like, you know, caregivers are looking for more than just pay. They're looking for training. They're looking for uh, a pathway or a career. And I a hundred percent agree with it. But if you don't have the foundation of competitive pay and consistency of work, that foundation is not even there for you to build upon. So I think those two really need to be focused on before you start thinking of a bigger picture. And then the third part of combating retention is the essence of family caregivers and leveraging, maybe not even family caregivers, but where clients can select a caregiver of their choosing. And for us at 24 and our parent company team, we fundamentally believe that people want to be cared for by someone of their choosing versus someone they don't know or a stranger. And I think you and I probably both agree with that. We probably would like to have someone that cared for us that we knew versus someone that we didn't. And naturally, if you have someone that you know, or is even a family member, you're probably going to have longevity with that person, right? You're going to have probably more familiarity and an understanding for exactly what the needs are. So we have seen longer retention, uh, longer success with that match if that person selects the character of their choice. That's so true. And, and it, I, I would say even just from my experience, when you're looking for something, you want somebody that knows you or, you know, for, familiar or that you trust or that could identify some different things that maybe somebody that would take a little bit while to learn about you and uh, your, your demeanor, or your condition or whatever it may be. Uh, so it's so great that there's been this emergence of family caregivers or consumer directed um caregivers, you know, depending on the state. I mean, and that's kind of, I think one of the big, the big thing out there is every state operates a little bit differently. Some have these programs um, already in existence and have been standing for a while. Others, it, it may be legislation that's out there and um, in the work. So what, what has your experience been with some of the consumer directed as well as just within some of the states that you're operating in? 
I love it. I love the, the, the concept of being able to be in control of who you can, who you can choose as your caregiver. And I think there's more definitely that we can do to show how that also leads to positive outcomes beyond retention, but in terms of even healthcare and, and, um, some of the, the, the way, whether it's recovering or aging in place, there are some factors there that we know of. We just have to be better at documenting some of that data. But like, I see it as, you know, we have two different challenges that are happening in our healthcare industry right now. I think on one side, you have just unpaid work by family caregivers. And I think the last, I just checked this a few days ago for this podcast, but I think the the economic value of unpaid caregivers right now, it's $600 billion. Wow. And to put that into context, that is more than all out-of-pocket spending on healthcare in the U.S. And it's four times the amount that the U.S. spends on home healthcare. So that includes skilled, unskilled, uh, and devices. So like, there's so much so much work that's being done right now that's going unpaid just because people are already caring for a loved one. That's 600 billion for people that are keeping score here. Like that's more than an Amazon. That's more than a Microsoft. Uh, it's a lot of money. And you're also seeing a lot of people leave their jobs to care for someone, right? So they're, they're quitting their jobs or maybe like foregoing promotions or opportunities within their careers to help care for someone. There was a study by HBS Harvard Business School. They studied uh, family caregiving. I think it was a third of them actually quit their job because of this family caregivers out of like, I think it was like 1500 employees that they surveyed. So yeah, they're disrupting their own family life to care for somebody or their careers to, to care for someone. So that's a challenge right there. Then you look on the other side of the industry of staffing. We just talked about it. Like it's the, the shortage of caregivers. It's been a thing for many, many years and it will only continue to get harder and become a challenge. Right. So I think we know 10,000 people turn 65 every single day. So that is exploding. The silver tsunami is already have came. And if you look, I know where this is a podcast, so I'm going to sort of visually explain it. If you look at the caregiver support ratio, like at a graph, you can Google this, the caregiver support ratio for elderly, and they define caregivers, caregivers that can support anywhere from 45 to 64 to an elderly, which is 80, 80 and up. It's about from 1990 to 2010, it stays pretty flat at about six to seven caregivers to elderly. So we had a better pool of people that could be caregivers. Now from 2010 to 2030, it goes down from seven to as low as like probably about four. So it's almost getting cut in half of the number of people that can be caregivers. Now it gets worse. 20 45, it gets to about three. So you have this other side where just the number of professional caregivers to be able to be caregivers is going down. And you have this on the other side, the number of family caregivers that are going unpaid is going up. Can you take these two challenges and be opportunities to put them together and solve each other? And that's why I really see family caregiving or this self-directed model really helps solve two of these challenges that we're facing in our US, US healthcare system. So I do feel like there's a TED talk in the in the making that someone can do by like really connecting the dot. But I feel it's so apparent, like you have these two challenges, can we fix them by putting them together? And we're seeing it happen state by state. 
Absolutely. For for anybody that's in a state that doesn't have a family caregiver consumer directed program in place, this is the jumping off point of you starting the lobbying for it to get out there to, you know, go go to your representatives, go to your senators, share about these things and what's needed because these stats, it, it's astronomical. Um, you know, I, I personally saw this with my with my mom caring for my grandmother and and just $600 billion. I mean, the, the number is just outrageous and it, it leads to burnout. And why, why shouldn't they be compensated for care that they're providing? And as you said, they're changing their lifestyle, um, whether they're retiring or foregoing a promotion or maybe moving back closer to home, whatever it may be, they, they are doing what they need to do to put their family first to make sure that their a loved one is getting the highest quality care and attention that they need to help them age in place. So with all that being said, what, what do you see as the future of what we're calling um, non-medical home care and the sil silver tsunami that you talked about that and all of those that th this is going to continue to compound? How do we make a future that's bright and see this be an uh, a big part of aging in place. Yeah, well, I will say this, the future is bright. And I think the future is very bright for home care. And we're starting to see a lot of really cool things happening on the family caregiver or sort of family selected caregiver uh, model. Uh, New York has a very large program. It's called CDPAP. Uh, they put a lot of money and investment into it. Colorado also has a unique program that's starting to spread into different states. So they have a family CNA program where a parent can apply to become a CNA or be trained as a CNA and actually get paid to care for their child that has severe um, challenges. So uh, that program is also expanded into Arizona, um, which is a great opportunity. And also we're seeing it also in some other states too. And then Washington passed uh, a law where they are now going to have a state long-term care fund for the Washingtonians. So I believe the what's happening in 2025, people are, if they pay into it, um, they are going to be allowed to spend $38,000 on long-term care that's paid for by the state. And you can use a family caregiver for that model. So I think we're seeing a lot of really cool things happening. And I think in the next five years, um, we're going to see a lot more states probably adopting it. Um, so yes, I think the future is bright. I think COVID has also shown that the home is the best, probably preferred and also the safest place for someone to age in place or recover. And I think home care has a very unique positioning where I think arguably we do have the most data points uh, in the home, right? To provide for someone's health and well-being. And we are in there the most amount of time than anyone else. I think the challenge that we've had as an industry is we just haven't really been good at collecting the data and the outcomes to show the benefits that we can provide. Uh, I think we all know that. We know the magic. I've seen the magic happen with my grandmother, but just really positioning it in a way that shows this from a data standpoint that you can present it to, whether it's Medicare or these different plans to show how effective we can be. Uh, but it's coming and I know it's going to be there. And if you look at the history of Medicare, there's a lot of things that Medicare covers now 
that they weren't covered when it first was launched in the 60s. And I do feel like home care is sort of on the, the trend of seeing more and more of that being uh, potentially being funded down the line. So I'm really excited for it. I think home care is essential. And uh, I really do think that uh, the, the future is bright for us. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's one of those things that with um, the future of it and just being able to, as you were saying, um, get more and more as Medicare or other uh, Medicaid plans and expanding the benefits, realizing the value that it is, making that package a little bit bigger for them to take advantage of all the services and expanding the service offerings, realizing that they all go hand in hand. All of them lead to better quality care, better outcomes, and just being able to gather that data, uh, extract that information and tell the story to really show the value add. And I, I know your organization that you shared with me once before has a, has a great story about your partnership with Cedar sinai um, if, if you'd share a little bit about that, um, it, it's an amazing story of the benefit of the services provided. Yeah. And, and the partnership really, I think it shows how home care can be leveraged to provide great outcomes uh, for uh, patients or members that especially are in the highest risk. I think the one great thing about home care too, and, and why it's, there's such a bright future, is we are the lowest cost of care in the spectrum of healthcare, right? So I, and I think the next step is just really providing data for it. And again, going back to the Medicare side, like we're always looking, like our healthcare system has historically looked for what is the lowest cost of care that can provide the best outcomes. We've seen it with our physicians, right? Physicians, very expensive. But now we're seeing this rise of PAs, physician assistants, to do a lot of the work that maybe a doctor can do, uh, but at a lower cost, but still be effective. Um, I tore my Achilles in 2020 playing basketball, um, and I went to outpatient physical therapy. I spent about 15 minutes with my actual PT and the other 45 minutes with the PT assistant that helped me with all the exercises. So it's like, the PT didn't need to be with me the whole time for an hour and, and the PT could then spend that person's time on, you know, working with other patients. So I do feel like home care can help. And I think our partnership with Cedar sinai and their uh, medical group was a great example of it. So just to share a brief synopsis on it, um, Cedar sinai was, their medical group was at fully at risk for a high risk patient population through United Healthcare. And um, that to serve that patient population, and since they're fully at risk, they needed more ambulatory care managers to be able to manage and, and take care of some of the patients that were discharged from the hospital. They were doing this through nurse practitioners. Nurse practitioners can be very expensive, uh, and the nurse practitioners would also have to go and drive to see all these patients. The nurse practitioners didn't like to drive and go all around LA and sit in all that traffic and do all these different visits. So Cedar sinai had the brilliant idea of, hey, can we partner with a non-medical home care company and really leverage their caregivers to be the eyes and ears, hands, feet, to help them expand their own bandwidth to take care of these high-risk patients? So um, the program itself was called Care Extenders, and our caregivers did exactly that. They were the boots on the grounds to do the visits for these patients and really just whether it's a tuck-in visit, make sure that they had all the resources that they needed, like food and 
their medications. Um, they provided companion care too, as well, to make sure they got settled in properly. And if there's any escalation of clinical needs, they are one phone call away or a Zoom call away from chatting with the nurse practitioner. So the nurse practitioner was able to stay in the office and not have to do all these different field visits and leverage their caregivers to be able to provide that information for them. So the program itself, we, I think we cared for about, it's like four, about 40 patients, high-risk patients, and the whole goal was to reduce hospital readmissions, uh, which is very successful. And from a financial perspective, uh, the cost of the program to serve all those 30 plus uh, patients was $28,000. So not too bad from a financial perspective, but finding out that the cost of one admission for this UHC patient to Cedars-Sinai was $28,000 as well. So preventing one admission from these high-risk patients cost paid for the whole program itself. That was eye-opening. And to add to that, we had 50 documented patient saves of preventing them from being readmitted. And uh, if you do the math, that equates to about you know, over a million dollars of savings that we were able to do by having those 50 saves. And like the really thing that baffles me is that, yes, you have the number of 50, but some of these saves were just mind-blowing. One of them I'll share is that we had a caregiver that went out and this patient just got discharged. And they got to the, the patient's house and the patient was in their home on their couch, smoking a cigarette with an oxygen machine right next to them. And not only was it a patient save, that was a life save there. So our caregiver was able to interject and obviously make sure that the person wasn't smoking with their oxygen machine. But like that came out as one, right? One patient save, but like the grand scheme of things, it's, we did so much more. And I think financially and also just from a outcomes perspective, uh, it was hugely successful. So um, Cedar sinai now really just use leverages our caregivers as a tool in their toolkit to help with some of these high-risk patients. So it went from pilot to now being part of their standard operating procedure to work with us. That's amazing. The story that you told, the case study presented, the the facts, the figures, the savings, it's truly incredible. I mean, it truly shows the value of what care in the home provides. It's extra eyes on the patient, additional touch point to prevent readmissions or true life-saving events that may be happening due to nobody else there or whether it's a, a caregiver or somebody knowledgeable in um, how deadly mixing some of these things could be. And it it just shows the, the importance that it, we're more than just, I would say, something in a toolkit. It's a, a truly an extension of their team and the services that patients need really to wrap around them when they're uh, recovering or um, overcoming an obstacle and helping keep them safe, aging in place in their home. And it's a great example. I see it as of like doing more with less. Right. So using our caregivers to extend and touch more lives, but also it's not going to cost as much as hiring, doing the same thing with a higher cost of care, like a nurse practitioner. And it's no different than what we're seeing with my you know, PT story of leveraging the PTAs where the areas that they can do and perform well, but not losing the quality of the service that PT provides. So I see that as the next direction for home care. And again, future is very bright. 
That's awesome. I'm so excited to continue to watch um, how the, the future of home care continues to evolve and it will evolve exceptionally well with a leader like you um, continuing to push on the forefront. So Ryan, thank you so much for joining me on, on today's podcast. Truly enjoyed hearing about your organization and your passion and enthusiasm for care in the home. Thank you, Maria. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, thank you for allowing me to be on your show. And to all of our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the McBee Care Threads podcast. At McBee, we understand the challenges providers face across the healthcare landscape. For more than 45 years, we've been a part of the evolution of the healthcare industry. Our strategic advisory solutions span the home health, hospice, health system, and senior living care continuums, creating improved clinical, financial, and operational outcomes. Our expertise is guaranteed. Our solutions empower. Visit us today at mcbeeassociates.com. Thank you for listening to McBee Care Threads. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. For more information on the topics discussed today, visit our website at mcbeeassociates.com. Until next time.